You know, I kind of want to back into the sermon tonight. It is a continuation of what we talked about last week, and uh, I'll review that briefly if you were absent, very briefly, and then we'll dive into what I want us to talk about tonight. But as I look back on my life, and maybe following Jesus Loves Me is a good time to, uh, to say this, maybe this fits, I just feel like I've been so blessed in my life to have been born into a wonderful home, to wonderful parents who love the Lord. To grow up in a, in a Christian home, I was born in the great state of Georgia and uh, moved to Texas when I was six months of age. So I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as quickly as I could. I said to my parents, we got to get out of here now and move on, go west, young man. And so we came to Texas and for my dad to go to seminary. And, uh, and then we went to Tennessee and I had my childhood years there. I just look back on that. I guess that's when I first heard Jesus loves me. I probably heard it a long, long time before that. That's when I first remember it. And then in East Texas, growing up, my teenage years there, playing ball, lifting weights, uh, mowing yards, going to church, just what a teenage boy is supposed to do. And, and then the privilege that our family had a long time ago to come to Pasadena. I was talking to a member on, our, on the phone just the other day who's a longtime member of First Baptist, and uh, I just said to him, one of the greatest things God ever did for our family is let us come to Pasadena to let us be a part of First Baptist. And so I just look back on my life, and I just feel like I've been blessed in so many ways. I feel like God has given me lots of friends, and many of you, I don't know everybody here tonight, but many of you would be in the group of people that I would consider some of my closest friends in the world. I just, I just look at my life in the past and even today, and I just thank God I've just been so blessed, and you've done so many fantastic things in my life, just as you would say for your own life. But I would say this, of all the great things that God has ever done in my life, of all the exciting and fantastic and just good experiences that I've ever had in my life, <laughs> beyond the shadow of any doubt, and I'll try to keep my emotions at bay tonight, but beyond the shadow of any doubt, the greatest experience that I've ever had in all my life was when God separated me from doubt. And we talked about doubt last Wednesday night, and we're going to talk about doubt again tonight. And as I was coming to church, as I was literally driving to church tonight, before I left my house, thinking about the subject, thinking about who might be in attendance, thinking about who might be watching at home, I just had this thought run through my mind. Could it be tonight that there's somebody here or somebody listening who needs the same separation from doubt that God gave me many years ago that absolutely changed my life. And what I'm saying to you is I look back on all the great things and the experiences and everybody that's been a blessing to my life, I thank God for all of it. But what I'm saying is this, the greatest blessing is when God taught me to trust Jesus, purely trust him, not just for my salvation, that's the main thing, but to trust him for everything. And when that doubt, that bondage of doubt lifted off of me, I'm telling you, my life changed, and my life has never been the same. That doesn't mean I haven't had problems. It doesn't even mean that I've never been worried or afraid or anxious. Or No, I still, we still live in this world, but I'm telling you, the whole thing about doubt got broken off of me, and I just think tonight, maybe you, as we get into this tonight, you may think, John, how in the world could God break me of that? How could God lift that burden off of me so that my mind could be 
clear, so that my steps could be light, so that my spirit could be free, and so that I could experience life the way God means for us to experience it. Well, it's interesting. Again, I'm backing into the sermon tonight, so just stay with me, and we'll get to the meat of it in just a moment. But earlier today, when I was having part of my quiet time, I was reading some great verses out of 1 Thessalonians, and I came across one, and I want us to begin here tonight, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, and notice what it says. For Paul is talking, and he said, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in, what's the next two words there? Much assurance. And so he said, our word didn't just come, our our gospel didn't just come with our words, but it also came with power, and it came with the Holy Spirit, and it came with much assurance. So I'm going to ask you this question tonight. This is what I thought of this morning. As you think about your life, when you share Christ with others, or just your daily life, whether you're even speaking or not, does your life have power to it? Does your life have the Holy Spirit on it? And does your life, would you say that your life is characterized by much assurance, or would you say, no, my life is characterized by a fair amount of doubt and question and so on? Well, if that's the case, I pray tonight you can get the doubt out and have a life that is characterized by much assurance that you are sure and assured that Jesus Christ is in your life, and not only that He's your Savior, but that He's in control and that He's going to take care of you. So we're talking again tonight about doubt, and I do want to review the definition that I gave last Wednesday night for doubt. It's always good when we're studying a topic like this to come up with a definition so everybody can be clear what we're talking about. What is doubt? Here it is. Doubt is when we question the Word of God, the goodness of God, or the ability of God to take care of us. That's what doubt is. We read a promise in the Bible. For example, it says, my God shall supply all of your needs. That's a promise. So when you read that, you have to make a decision. Do I believe that or do I not believe that? Or am I not sure whether I believe that or not? (laughs) And if you say that, that's doubt. You're doubting a promise of God. Or here's another promise. We all know, quoted all the time. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. That's a promise. But in the middle of the battle out there, we sometimes think, how in the world is God going to bring good out of whatever it is that I'm going through right now? So many times we doubt God's Word. Sometimes we doubt God's power, and we doubt God's goodness. And if God is really good and we doubt God's power, can God really do something here? And so we just put a big question mark across our lives and across the promises of God. And instead of living with much assurance... And by the way, it is only the person who's living with much assurance that has the Holy Spirit on his or her life in power and who has that power coming from his life. And so that's the lane we want to run in, the lane lane not of doubt, but the lane of much assurance. That's where God wants us to be, and that's where we want to be. Now, as I said last week, if you think about it, only believers struggle with doubt. The atheist is not struggling with doubt. If you go out tonight and ask an atheist, do you believe in God? No. 
There's no struggle. There's no question. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing. There's no struggle going on. He just doesn't believe in God. So an atheist doesn't have that internal struggle with doubt. Now, they don't have any peace. They don't have any lasting joy. They don't have any real hope of life after death. But one thing they don't have, they don't have doubt. So if you're struggling with asking questions, did you know in a strange way that doubt is kind of a backwards affirmation that you do really believe but you're struggling to believe, and your faith has not come into full bloom. It's still maturing, and it's still developing, and uh, it's not as strong as God wants it to be. Now, take your hand out. Hopefully, you picked up when you came in. If you didn't, this will all be on the screen. You can just follow along uh, up here. But the message last week talked about six problems with doubt. And as much as I would like to make comments on all of this, I'm just going to mention this, and I just want you to see this, because this is the reason that doubt is so serious and that doubt is such a problem. Number one, it divides the mind. Number two, it deprives us of what we're praying for. James said, if you doubt when you pray, you're not going to get what you're asking for because the doubt means you're, uh, you're, you're questioning God. Number three, doubt distances, distances us from God, and it distances us from the people of God. Not only that, that doubt dilutes our commitment to God. It weakens our faith. Not only that, doubt damages our lives. And we spent a great deal of time at the end last week talking about what doubt did and how the enemy, how Satan used doubt in the Garden of Eden to really damage Adam and Eve. And and I'm not going to redo this tonight except to say, as a result of their doubt, first of all, first thing they did, their doubt led them to sin. And remember what we said last Wednesday night, doubt is the mother sin. So many times in life, maybe we're committing a sin here, or maybe we have a sin there, something going on, but if you'll trace it back, doubt and unbelief is what's giving birth to that sin. That was the case for Adam and Eve. Doubt led them to sin. The devil said to Eve, has God really said that you can't eat this fruit? And he got Eve to wondering, and he got her to doubting. And like a boxer on the rope, she and Adam, now they're weak, and then the devil comes along with his knockout blow. And so doubt does that. It damages our lives. It led them to sin. After that, they were afraid of God. Did you know that fear is the result of doubt? When you wonder and question whether or not God's Word is true, whether or not God's character is good, whether or not God has the ability to see you through whatever you're going through, good night, that's going to make you very much afraid. And so fear is the child of doubt. And not only that, Adam and Eve were in conflict with each other. They were blaming each other for their sins. And, and many times, in, in re, even in relationships today, whether it's marriage, whether it's work, or whether it's a friend relationship, you, you mark this down. When there's conflict and you begin to try to trace back what is, the con- what, what is the cause of this conflict? I'm not necessarily saying that every time that it's doubt and unbelief, but many times it is. It is doubting. Many times in our relationships, we get in a conflict with somebody because we're trying to have our way. And, but what is called, why are we trying to have our way? Well, if we really believe that God was in control, we wouldn't be trying to have our way. We'd let him have his way. <laughs> And we would realize, wait a second, just like I'm not in control, this other person's not in control either. And so you have to remember this. As a child of God, the only person ultimately in control of your life is God. And sometimes we think, well, this person is trying to control my life. And maybe they are. 
But remember this, they're not in control. So if you really believe, when I wait a second, this person may think they're in control of my life. They're not in control of my life. God's in control. So now that gets you operating in faith. And now it's like, well, I don't have to, if they're not in control, I don't have to fight to be in control. I can just trust God because he is in control. So many of our conflicts are, are the result of doubt. And then we saw last week that Adam and Eve were driven out of their home. They were driven out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. And so many times in life, we even have financial problems. I mean, I know finances weren't the issue back then, but today it would be if you lose your house. But many times we have financial problems because instead of trusting God to provide what we needed and when we needed it, we went out and bought something that we couldn't afford, living above our means to try to impress somebody we probably don't even really like. And maybe that's a bad way to say it, but you probably, you know, maybe it's true in some cases. And so now... We're in financial trouble, but if you really trace it back, it was doubt. Doubt that you could be satisfied with less. Doubt that the simple life is the better life. Doubt that you don't have to put yourself under that pressure, and so it can even cause financial problems, but really doubting and questioning God is behind all of it, and then ultimately, doubt destroys our faith. So that was the Bible study last Wednesday night, and if you missed it, you're caught up to speed, and if you were here last week, uh, now you're reminded of all that, and that sets us up nicely for what I want to talk to you about tonight, how can we defeat doubt? And so if you're one of those people tonight that struggles, now you need to think about this, because I mean this sermon, this is like a group counseling session using the Bible as our guide, which is what all counseling sessions should use as their guide. If you tonight are struggling with fear, worry, anxiety, being even being overwhelmed, who hasn't struggled? Who doesn't struggle with that? I mean, we all have, and sometimes we all do. What I'm saying to you tonight is behind all of that is this whole idea of doubt. It is questioning something about God or His Word, and it's causing all those negative emotions that that God doesn't want you to live with, even though we all experience them from time to time. So how can we defeat doubt? Now, the reason last Wednesday night when we got only about five minutes left in the sermon, when I got to this point and I decided to delay it tonight, because I think I can say some things here that can help you to get rid of this doubt in your life. And maybe even in the next 20, 25 minutes, you can be done with this and you can live a much better life. So the number one, I'm going to mention three things tonight, and I'm going to back it all up with Scripture. But the number one thing that will help you to overcome doubt in your life is to begin to doubt your doubts. To doubt your doubts. Now, open your Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter number 11. Because here we see that uh, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. He was actually the cousin of Jesus, the relative of Jesus. He's the one who baptized Jesus. And yet John came to a place in his life where he began to have some doubts about Jesus. Now, in Matthew chapter 11, verse number 1, here's what we read. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard, now watch this, in prison. And so John the Baptist is in prison because of his faithful witness of Jesus Christ and because, well, he's actually in prison because he, has made, he had made Herod the king mad. 
And so here they, he got sent to prison. So his circumstances are less than ideal. He's in prison. Uh, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, now here are the questions John's disciples asked Jesus. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now think about this. John the Baptist in prison is beginning to wonder if Jesus truly is the Son of God. Did you know, did you even know, did you know John the Baptist doubted whether Jesus was the Son of God? Now, put your bulletin where we are and turn over to the Gospel of John in chapter number one, and I'm going to show you why this is so, uh, what we might call bizarre or unthinkable, that of all people, John the Baptist could have been doubting whether or not Jesus was God's Son. In John chapter one, verse 29, here's what it says. The next day, John the Baptist we looked at this verse on Sunday, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me because he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Now watch verse 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he, that is the Spirit of God, remained upon Jesus. Now look at verse 33. I did not know him. In other words, John is saying, I did not know when I, when I was baptizing Jesus. I didn't fully understand who he was. But he who sent me to baptize with water, that's God the Father, said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John said, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And so John the Baptist is out there in the Jordan River. He's baptizing all these people. And Jesus comes up and Jesus said, John, I'd like for you to baptize me. And John said, no, 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 I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, no, I want you to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. And so here's John in the Jordan River, and he's baptizing Jesus. And God, in the midst of this whole experience, probably before he baptized him, God said, now, John, when you're out there baptizing all these people, somebody's going to come up to you. You're going to recognize him as a holy man. And he's going to ask to be baptized by you. Here's what I want you to know, John. The one whom you see my spirit land upon in the form of a dove, that is my son. That is the Messiah. That is the Christ. And so John baptized Jesus. He sees this happening. And John said, I knew. And I, he said here, I know that this is the son of God. So the apostle, or, or John the Baptist rather, had no doubt at the baptism that Jesus was the son of God. Time goes by, maybe a year, probably closer to three years go by, two and a half, three years go by, and now John's in prison, and he's in less than ideal circumstances, and in that environment, he begins to doubt, and he begins to question, is this really God? And that says to me, if John the Baptist can doubt something that God the Father told him, probably audibly, and that he saw with his eyes when that dove landed on Jesus. If John the Baptist can doubt, any of us can doubt. Now, but Jesus didn't want John to stay in his doubt. So back in Matthew chapter 11, notice what Jesus said to these disciples that, that came saying, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Notice what Jesus said. 
Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And so Jesus said to those disciples, you go back and tell John this. In my ministry, I'm causing the blind to see. I'm causing the lame to walk. I'm healing the lepers. I'm, giving, I'm restoring hearing to the deaf. The dead are raised. I'm preaching the, the poor are being saved. And so what was Jesus saying? You see, Jesus didn't just say to those disciples, go back and tell John, yes, I'm, I'm the Messiah. He didn't say that. He said, go back and tell John all that's happening through me, all the things that are happening. And so he, they went back and told John, and then John, he, okay, yes, this really was, this, I did have a word from God. Jesus is the Messiah. Now I know. The point I'm making is, what was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, John, I know you're in prison. I know your circumstances are not good. And I know in those difficult circumstances, it's easy to doubt and question and wonder, where's God now? But what I want you to do is to doubt your doubts. You're doubting whether I'm the Messiah, but think about it. If I weren't the Messiah, could I be doing all these miracles that I'm doing, healing all these people and raising the dead? If I weren't the Messiah, what he was saying was, John, you need to learn to doubt your doubts and question your doubts. So how does this apply to us? Well, here's how. When we begin to question and wonder, is God really good? Is God going to take care of me? Is God going to meet this need? Is God going to see me through this? God going to bring good out of this? Is Romans 8, 28 going to get the last word on this? We begin to question that. We have to begin to doubt our doubts, and we have to do it on two levels. First of all, we have to begin to consider who it is we're doubting. We're doubting the God of the Bible. And so when you think about that, you have to go back and think, now, wait a second. The, the, the promise says, God has said, he's going to meet all my needs. God has said, his grace is sufficient. God has said, I can do all things through Christ. God has said that he's going to be with me every step of the way. God has said, no weapon formed against me will prosper. God said that. God said that uh, he'll take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it around for good. God said he would restore the years that the locusts have eaten. God said that. God said he would fulfill his purpose for my life. God said he would perfect that which concerns me. God said all these things. God said that he's going to give me a peace that passes all understanding. God said there's a way for me to be content in, any, in every situation. Now, God said that, but I'm doubting that, and I'm questioning that. And I'm wondering how that could be true because, after all, my circumstances aren't perfect either. They're not ideal. I've got my own problems. John was in prison, but look what I'm going through. And so we doubt. But what you need to do is doubt your doubts. And you need to think about this. When you begin to doubt all those promises that I just shared, you're doubting the God of the Bible. You're doubting the God who made the world. You're doubting the God who performed all these miracles, who parted the Red Sea, who fed him in the wilderness, who multiplied the fish and the loaves, who walked on the Sea of uh, Galilee, who died on the cross, who three days later rose from the dead. You're doubting him. And so you have to doubt your doubts. And you have to ask yourself, is it logical? Is it logical? You see, that's one thing that will help you with doubt. Doubt is illogical. It's natural. It's normal. We've all done it. But it is illogical because we're doubting the God of the Bible. Who, who think about this? who can do anything but tell a lie. God can't lie. And so we're doubting the God of the Bible, but you know what? Also, we're doubting the God 
who has been with us every step of the way. And that's why I think that when I got up at the beginning, I was, talk, I was kind of tracing some of my life and how good God's been to me. Well, I mean, here's the question. Is it logical for me to doubt, not only the God of the Bible, but is it logical for me to doubt the God who has kept every promise that he's ever made to me, that he has seen me through every storm I've been through, that he has delivered me from every trial, that he has, that he has exceedingly abundantly done far beyond what I could ever imagine. Is it logical to doubt him? Well, no, it's not logical at all. And so we need to doubt our doubts. Now, you still listen? Say amen. Now, go to, I want to show you a verse. Go to the Old Testament and find the book of Isaiah and find chapter 26. It's one of my favorite verses in, in all the Bible. In fact, I want to show you two verses out of Isaiah 46. And when this service is over tonight and you get home and you're thinking about it and you're, what do we talk about tonight? Doubt, don't doubt God. Doubt your doubts. It's illogical to doubt. Well, Isaiah chapter 46, I came across this verse years ago. You know, I'll tell you how, how this verse became real to me. I had read this verse. In fact, I want to just show you the verse right now. Then I'll tell you the story. Isaiah 46, 4. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs... I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. And so God is saying here, even when you're old and your hairs are gray or your hairs are gone, it wouldn't make any difference. God is saying, I've made you, I will bear you, I will carry you, and I will deliver you, even to old age. I was visiting a nursing home several years ago, and I was walking down the hall to visit whoever I was going to visit, and just happy as I could be, excited to see whoever I was going to be seeing, Mine wasn't worried about anything, and all of a sudden, the devil put this thought, either the devil or me, it wasn't God, either the devil or me put this thought in my mind. Here was the thought. If you end up in a nursing home, who's going to visit you? Now, that just came to my mind. And I thought, well, now, that's a good question. Who is going to visit me? And uh, I hope you guys live a long time. So if I do, and I'm just pray I don't go to a nursing home. But I, you know, I just had that thought come to my mind. It was kind of scary because I thought, well, I don't know who would. And immediately, maybe not immediately, but within about a minute, this verse came to my mind. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I hope I don't end up in a nursing home. If I do, will I have anybody visit me or not? I don't know if I'll have a visitor, but I'll have a full-time resident. God will be with me in that room. And God will be with you because he's made this promise. Even to your old age, I'm he. Now, look at the verse before that because this is what I'm tying it in tonight, how it's illogical to doubt that God is going to take care of us in the future when God has taken care of us in the past. Now, look at verse 3. God said, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. God says, God says I have carried you from the womb. And just like I have carried you from the womb, I will carry you to the tomb and then beyond the tomb. God says, just like I've been with you from before you were born, I knit you together in your mother's womb. I was there when you were born. I was there when you were growing up. I was meeting your needs. I was seeing to everything that everything was tended to in your life. Just like I was with you from the beginning, I will be with you to the end. Now, let me ask you this question. Is it logical to doubt, first of all, what God has said here. It's not logical. And as you look at your own life, is it logical to doubt 
that the one who has taken care of you up until this point will take care of you all the way to heaven. Is it logical? No, it's not logical. It's illogical. And that's the reason tonight that I'm saying one of the things you can do to get loose, this is not the main thing, it's the first thing that you can do to get loose is to doubt your doubts and to get to the place where you say, this is illogical. Consider who I'm doubting. How foolish of me to doubt God. Now, the second step is just as important. If we're going to get loose from doubt, we have to change our focus. You doubt your doubts, but you also change your focus. Now, go back to the Gospel of John. This time, find chapter number 20, because this is where we spent most of our time last week. Jesus was helping doubting Thomas to stop doubting. And one of the reasons that Jesus stayed on the earth for 40 days after the resurrection, before he went back to heaven, was to help people who were going through a hard time. And Thomas was going through a hard time. Thomas was doubting. And he was not convinced that Jesus was alive. And so Jesus made a second trip back to the room there in Jerusalem where the disciples were gathered a week after the resurrection. Now, this is the Sunday after the resurrection. And Thomas, this time, is with the disciples. And notice what Jesus does in verse 27. Jesus said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. And then he says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. But what I want you to see is that Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, you have said that you would not believe unless you could see with your eyes the nail prints in my hands, unless you could put your hand in my side. So, if that's what it takes to get you to believe, I want you to believe. Here are my hands. Look. Look at my hands. Here's my side. Put your hand in my side, Thomas. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was saying, Thomas, you've got all these doubts in your mind. And what, I wanted, what I'm trying to do is to change your focus, to get your focus off of your questions. See, Thomas was wondering, Jesus rise from the dead? I don't think, I mean, I, I, he probably can, but what are the odds somebody's really going to rise from the dead? And if he had risen from the dead... How come I haven't already seen him? He's got all these questions. And so Jesus said, Thomas, you need to get your focus off your doubts. Get your focus on to me. Now, in my own life, this was the most important thing that God did for me to free me from my doubts. It was to get my focus off of me and to get my focus on to him. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. I've always said that for many years, I doubted my salvation. There is a sense in which that's true. But as I've thought about that, I mean, really trying to split a hair, in, the, in, my, in my doubting of salvation, I never doubted God. I only doubted me. I never doubted God's ability to save. I never doubted anything about God. Here's what I doubted. I doubted, as I've said before, and even I said recently in a sermon, I doubted When I went to get saved, did I do it right? So, see, the reason I had doubt is because my focus was on me instead of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is doing here to Thomas. He's saying, Thomas, look at me. Get your head. Get your head out of the clouds. Stop focusing in the wrong direction. Look at me. Here are my hands. Here's my side. Get your focus on me. 
The devil's trick, not just with salvation, it's certainly true there, but the devil's main trick in life is to get your focus off of Jesus. Anything he can do. I was home the other day. This is a digression, but it, it's good. What I'm about to say is interesting. I don't know how, how relevant, but it's, it's interesting, and I think it has application here. I was home the other day on a Friday, and I was thinking about something that was bothering me. Something that, it's not, it was not a big deal, but it was something I didn't think was right. And it bothered me. And it was, anno- I found it quite annoying. And so I was praying about it, and I said, God, I don't think, this is not a big deal. I don't think this is right. It is quite annoying to me, and I wish you would change it. And Lord, here's my, here was my request on that Friday morning. I said, God, I'm asking you to show me how to look at this situation differently because I know that so much of life is our perspective, how we look at things. And God, if you'll just show me how to look at this situation differently, then it won't bother me. It won't annoy me. And as soon as I prayed that is one of the most, you've had these experiences, and I have, but I had this experience the other Friday in my home, that Friday morning, not audibly, but down in my heart, when I said, God, show me how to look at it differently. Here's what God said. Don't look at it. Don't look at it. In other words, God said, I'm not going to have to look at it differently. I'm telling you, don't look at it. And when he said that, I knew that, I knew that was God, and I knew that was right. Because, but that's my point. The devil's snare, and that's what I'm saying, it's not just with salvation. The devil's snare is to do anything he can to get your focus off of Jesus. And I'll tell you this, there's plenty in our country right now to get our eyes off Jesus. And there's plenty in our country to get us annoyed and get us a little upset and a little bit hot under the collar, a little bit all worked up, a little bit anxious, a little bit worried. And it's, I'm, what I'm saying to you, behind all of that is the devil The devil, listen to me, he doesn't care if you're obsessed with politics, if you're obsessed with somebody else, if you're obsessed with how much much money you have, if you're obsessed with a hobby, if you're obsessed with somebody who's offended you or hurt your feelings. The devil doesn't care what or who you focus on as long as you don't focus on Jesus. His main objective is to get your focus off of Jesus. Because he knows if your focus is off of Jesus, you are a sinking ship. What does it say, Isaiah 26, 3? What did the prophet say? You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. So the promise is if our mind is stayed on God and if we're trusting in him, perfect peace. Well, if you believe that's true, amen. If that's true, the opposite must also be true. Those whose minds are not stayed on God will not be at perfect peace. I'm telling you, in a nutshell, what the devil wants to do in the life of the believer is to get us to focus on anything other than Jesus. Because once that happens, once our focus is not on Jesus, we lose our peace, we lose our perspective, And from there, the bottom can fall out. And so, what God wants to do is to get us to focus on Him. And so, when Jesus goes to Thomas, what's He doing? Thomas, change your focus. Put your focus on me. Now, turn if you would. I may have already said this, but if not, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. 
Hebrews chapter 12. But what I just said is worth you thinking about and maybe applying to your life. There may be something in your life that's annoying to you, that's bothering you, that's upsetting to you. You don't think it's right, and you know what? You may be right. It may not be right. Unless you can change it, it may be that what God is saying to you tonight, the same thing God said to me a few weeks ago, don't look at it. Because if you look at it, your focus is wrong. Now, let's get back to the doubt and think we're thinking a little more specifically here about salvation. All those years I doubted my salvation. I wasn't doubting God. I was doubting me. I was doubting my faith. And uh, I came across this book by Adrian Rogers years ago, and he had been through the same struggle. I never knew he had until 2003. In July of 2003, it became revealed to me by him through a sermon that he had been through the same struggle I'd been through, and he told how he got out of it, and God used that to help me get out of it. Here's what Adrian said. If you put faith in faith, that is your focus instead of on God is on your own faith, you're a sitting duck for the devil. The devil will come to you and say, you're not good enough to be saved. You say, I know it, but I don't have any faith in myself. The devil says, there are hypocrites in the church. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there are hypocrites in the church, yes or no? Yes, there are hypocrites in every church. I mean, sometimes we're all hypocrites. And uh, so sometimes these people out there who are not going to church, what they, the devil says to them, you don't need to go to church. There are hypocrites in the church. Well, that's true. So what has the devil done? He's gotten the people's focus off of God and off their need to get saved, and now their focus is on all the hypocrites in the church. So you should say to the devil, I'm not putting my faith in hypocrites. I'm trusting the Lord. The devil will say to you, now this is how the devil tries to make people doubt their salvation, but you don't feel like you should. You don't feel saved. And you say, I'm not trusting my feelings. I'm trusting the Lord. Adrian said, you would think the devil would go away, but do you know what he'll do? And this is the slyest thing of all. He will say, you say you're trusting the Lord, but how do you know your faith is strong enough? How do you know your faith is the real thing? That's his dirtiest and most devious trick. And Adrian said, many people go under when Satan says this. If the devil ever pulls that stunt on you, just tell him this. Look, devil, I'm not putting my faith in faith. My faith is in Jesus. Now, there's a difference in that. The least amount of faith in the right right object is better than strong faith in the wrong object. We're to believe in him. Do you remember what the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 2? Now, that's the verse I wanted you to look at. In Hebrews 12, 2, we are to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, he said. Don't look at your look. Don't look at your faith. Don't put faith in your faith. Put faith in God. And so tonight, some may be here and say, John, I, you know, Yes, sometimes I doubt God's ability to meet my needs or to see me through or to take care of my family or whatever. But some may say, this whole thing about doubting my salvation, I do that too because I don't always feel, quote, feel saved. I don't always act saved. I don't, my, my faith's not really all it should be. We see what the devil's done? Instead of your focus being on Jesus, instead of your faith being in Jesus, now where's your focus? Your feelings? Your actions, your imperfections, your sins, your faith, instead of looking above, you're looking within, 
And if you look within, you will become hopeless. We have to change our focus from inward to upward. And we look to Jesus. And when we look to Jesus, we've got our faith in the right place. And so how do we get this doubt off of us? We doubt our doubts. It's not logical to doubt the God of the Bible. It's not logical to doubt the God who's been with us since we were in our mother's womb. And then we change our focus from us to Jesus. It doesn't matter. Listen, we're not saved by the strength of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith, and that needs to be Jesus. And then the third thing that we can do to defeat doubt, it's very simply this, believe. Believe. As I said last Wednesday night, if you're doubting Jesus, you can't at the same time be trusting Jesus. And if you're trusting Jesus, you can't be doubting Jesus. Hear what Again, what Jesus said to John, uh, to Thomas, rather, in John chapter 20 and verse 27, at the last of the verse, he said, do not be unbelieving, but believing. I would say this to the doubter tonight. The way out. Now, you've listened to this whole sermon. Everything I've said has been biblical, right, and good. We get out of doubt by doubting our doubts, by changing our focus, but the real, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like if you'll doubt your doubts and if you'll change your focus, it's kind of like now you're a a prisoner. You've been in Alcatraz or some other prison for 20 years. When you began to doubt your doubts and when when you started doubting your doubts, the key went in the door. When you changed your focus, the key turned the lock and now the door is open. But you're still in the cell. The, 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 the door's open. You, you can get out. You say, okay, John, now I'm doubting my doubts. It's illogical. I'm changing my focus. It's not me but Jesus, but I'm still in the, yeah, you're still in the cell until you take this action step here, until you believe. You say, John, how do I take the action step and step out of this cell and out into freedom? Here's how you do it. If you, if you tonight are living under the burden and bondage of doubt. I'm telling you tonight from the Word of God, I'm telling you tonight as one who's traveled this road how you can step out of that and that bondage can be gone. You look up to heaven and you say these words, Jesus, I'm trusting you. And if you say that, and if you mean that, you just walked out of that cell of doubt. And you just walked into that freedom. And every time, that doesn't mean the devil won't come back and try to suck you back in or get your focus back off God. No, he'll be back. But every time he, every time he does that, if you can just learn to respond to him by saying, I'm trusting Jesus. I'm trusting Jesus. I'm trusting Jesus. I'm telling you, the devil cannot stand a steady diet of a Christian who says and believes and means, I'm trusting Jesus. Amen?